We are beginning a new series today, a verse-by-verse study through the book of Colossians. This letter is written by the Apostle Paul while he is, he is imprisoned in Rome. And he is reminding these believers, as he writes, he is reminding them of the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus Christ for salvation. The theme is summed up in chapter 3 and verse 11, and it reads like this, Christ is all and is in all. And there are some false doctrines in Colossae that are beginning to threaten the church. And so Paul is writing in part to combat these false teachings. And he does so by reminding the Colossians of who Jesus really is. He's reminding them of what we just sang about. It is Christ alone in which we find salvation. So I know you just sat down. I wanted to give you just a little bit of a break there. But if you have your Bibles and uh, you're at Colossians chapter 1, just in honor of the reading of the Word of God, I invite you to stand for one more moment as we read Colossians chapter 1 and the first eight verses. The Word of God says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understand the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. A little over a decade ago, after being frustrated with my Windows computer, sorry PC lovers, I decided to make the switch to Apple. And so I got online and I ordered my first MacBook computer. And I'll never forget, a few days later, I received this small box in the the mail. And in it was simply my laptop, a power cord, and an instruction card, not even a booklet. And all the instructions said was essentially this. Plug in laptop, turn it on, and follow the instructions on the screen. There was a video that would pop up and walks you step by step through the setup of this new MacBook. Now, I was a little bit skeptical. I thought, man, it's got to be more complicated than this because I was not a, a, a Mac user, okay? I thought, man, I'm going to have to learn an all-new operating system. This has got to be more difficult than this. But to my surprise, it was really, really that simple. So, After years of being on the phone with Microsoft support, with people that I couldn't understand, come on somebody. After having to continually install drivers and deal with viruses and the dreaded blue screen of death and incessant formats and reinstalls, I fell in love, here it is, with the simplicity of the MacBook. And here's the deal, I've used Macs ever since because I love simplicity. Is anybody with me? And one of the things that I love so much about the gospel is this, that it is very simple. And I'm not trying to equate Apple with the gospel, just to clarify. The gospel is simply this. 
It is the good news of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, the, the Apostle Paul summarizes this good news like this. He says this, Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. And here it is, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you're saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. In other words, you can't stray from the true gospel. All right? And here's how he defines it. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, the one whom the Old Testament Scriptures anticipated. This Jesus, as you know, died in our place and he was raised from the dead so that uh, by grace, through faith in him, we could have complete and total forgiveness. That we could have right standing with God the Father. That we could be brought into the kingdom of God, the domain of God, and the family of God. Let me give you an even simpler summation of the gospel. It's simply this, that the good news of Jesus is that we are saved and brought safely into God's kingdom by repentant faith in Jesus Christ. He is supreme and His sacrifice is sufficient. That's the gospel. It is simple. It is clear. But do you know that there are many in our day who actually stumble over the, the simplicity of the gospel? Because we are used to the, the world's way of religion, which is much more complex. Every other religion on the planet says, hey, if there is a God, you have to do something. You have to be really, really good or really, really righteous on your own. And perhaps if you do enough good, you can appease God and you can somehow get to Him. So many Christians they come into faith by the simple gospel, but then they feel there's got to be something else. Like it cannot be this simple. Well, friends, I want to tell you today, it is that simple. We are saved totally and fully and forever by grace through faith in Christ to the glory of God. Well, this simplicity of the message seems incomprehensible to the believers that are in Colossae. Colossae has a mixed population, which means that the town has many different religions. It's a pluralistic town. Polytheism is throughout this city. You had animism and superstition. You had then the worshiping of Greek and Roman gods and goddesses, Judaism, as well as many cults and religions. And so one of the main issues, you need to know this, one of the main issues that is threatening this church is syncretism, which is the combining and blending of different religions. And we see this, I'll talk about this on Wednesday, we see this happening in the church in America, to, America today. We call it the American gospel, where we take the biblical gospel and we try to blend it with American theology, if you will. So the Colossians need to know that Christ alone is enough. They don't need anything from any other surrounding religion. You cannot combine Christianity and another faith. The Christian faith stands all by itself. 
So Paul is writing to these believers to help prevent and even correct some bad theology, some wrong beliefs. And he wants them to grow in their knowledge and their understanding of who Christ really is. So in these first several verses, Paul lets us in on his beautiful prayer life. We see the way in which he prays for this church. And it's interesting that Paul has actually never met these believers. There's no record of him ever going to Colossae. It was Epaphras who heard the gospel preached by Paul in Ephesus. And then Epaphras took the gospel from Ephesus back to his hometown And the gospel began to spread. And so he has gone back and he was reported to the Apostle Paul. And you know, that's the way the gospel ought to work here. You ought to get filled up today and you ought to take it to all of Richmond and Berea and Winchester, wherever you go. That's what Paul is celebrating in this prayer. There's two main parts of the prayer. First, Paul prays and just thanks God. He celebrates the good that is happening in this church. And that's what I want to talk about today but secondly he prays for their continual growth so so we're gonna really focus today on this celebration of what's happening in Colossae and I love this because you know have this propensity as human beings to always see what's wrong with everybody do we not and to be sure we all have issues that probably need a little bit of correction amen but we have this propensity in our, in our children, when we look at our spouse, when we uh, go to work and we, we, we evaluate our coworkers, and even within the church, we have this tendency to see the negative, what's wrong with everybody, and very seldom do we actually celebrate what's right in one another. And I just hope today that we'll just take something from the Apostle Paul, and, and because even though there's some issues in the church, I mean, there are some false doctrines threatening the church, I love here that he begins with celebration. And oh, I'm grateful for some of the men and women in this church who aren't always telling me what's wrong and needs to be fixed. Oh, there's a time and place for that, but I'm grateful for those of you, and I see cel- several of you sitting here that just celebrate, saying, hey, listen, I know the church is not where it needs to be, but let's just celebrate today what God has done. Amen? We all want people like that in our lives. So Epaphras has reported back to Paul that the gospel has taken Root. This is what Paul celebrates. He's convinced, Epaphras, is that in Colossae there are what we call real followers of Jesus, which then begs the question, how does Epaphras make this assumption? How does he know the gospel has taken root? Well, it's the same way that you and I can tell that the gospel has really taken root, namely through the Christian triad of faith, hope, and love. Or as Paul the order that Paul uses here, faith, love, and hope. So verse 4, let me draw your attention there. Paul says, We heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So Paul begins by talking about and commending the Colossians' faith. Now, it is through faith that we are saved. How many believe that? 
Faith is the means by which we are brought into the family of God or the kingdom of God, God's domain. Paul does not try, it's interesting here, he doesn't try and flatter these believers. He doesn't say, oh, I commend you for your faith. That's what he says. He says, I thank God because of your faith. And and this is very important because salvation is a gift from God. You and I cannot boast because salvation is a gift. It comes by grace through faith. Ephesians 2 verse 8, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, that no one may boast. So we cannot boast about our own salvation. And Paul rightly then thanks God for his work in the lives of the Colossians. And oh, today I want to celebrate what God, by his grace, is doing amongst the believers at real life today. Is anybody excited about what God is doing here? When we talk about faith, it's important to recognize that faith is more than an intellectual understanding of gospel facts. Biblical faith is repentant faith. And don't miss this. To have saving faith is to turn from yourself to where you are the Lord of your own life. And it is to turn to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you have not done that, you, have, you do not possess saving faith. James tells us that good works will accompany saving faith. The great reformer Martin Luther said this. He said, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. So there's this assumption of obedience to Jesus that is coupled with faith in Christ. Let me mention one more truth about faith. The object of our faith is very important, is it not? The culture in the city of Colossae was very pluralistic in that they believed and they worshiped many gods. And Paul is sure to point out the only object of faith that will work for salvation. To be sure, that is Jesus Christ. He must be the object of our faith. You can't just have faith in any old God. You can't have faith in anyone else but in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one whom we can put our faith in. Secular humanists today will tell you, believe in yourself. But can I tell you, that will do you absolutely no good. It will not change your life. Faith in the numerous gods of Hinduism cannot deliver you. Faith in New Age spirituality cannot bring you any closer to God. I don't care how much yoga you do or meditation you do. It can't change your life. Faith in the teachings of the prophet Muhammad cannot offer you salvation. But there is salvation in no one else, Acts 4.12 says. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's only in the name of Jesus. On Thursday night, the, the praise team messed with me a little bit because they were warming up with one of my favorite hymns, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. And oh, it goes so well with what I'm speaking on today when we talk about Jesus must be the object of our faith because the song says, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. See, folks, Jesus is not a way of salvation. He is the way of salvation. And that kind of faith, when you trust in Christ, you have repentant faith in Christ. When that is present in the life of any man or woman, it does something. It changes you. It changes a person from the inside out, and it produces good works. And one of the virtues that it produces that is most evident in the life of true believers is this virtue that Paul talks about next, namely the virtue of love. Are you with me? Verse 4, Paul says, We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus that you have for all the saints. Friends, real faith does not exist in a vacuum. It always results in a changed life. And one of the visible evidences, we talk about this often, of true saving faith, it's not your church attendance, it's not how much scripture you can quote, it's not how theological you, you seem to be, but it's your love for other believers. 1 John 3, 14 and 15. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, other believers. And then in chapter 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, who he's not seen. And this commandment, we have for him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So a true follower of Christ will love fellow believers. A true follower of Jesus will love fellow believers. Now, I want you to consider Paul's love for these believers. He is praying for them, he says, on a regular basis. He's writing them and helping them in spiritual growth. And keep in mind, never met them. How much more should we love the ones whom we fellowship with on a weekly basis? And now he commends these believers, watch this, for their love for all the saints. In other words, there's not just one generation or one popular group or one socioeconomic group that is loved. No, they have a love for all the saints. There's this inclusiveness to their love. And so it should be with every gospel-believing church. John MacArthur writes that true saving faith is more than a conviction of the mind. He says it transforms the heart to love. And oh, does it do that. And by the way, when we talk about love, Paul is not leaving this up to our own interpretation of what love looks like. This is why he brings clarity in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It says, you know this, love is patient and kind. Is that what people would say about you? Is your love patient and kind? Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And I celebrate the genuine love it at Real Life Community Church. Amen. Finally, Paul thanks God for one more virtue that is evident in this church, namely hope. We are to be a people of hope. Verse 4, we've heard of your faith in Christ, the love that you have for the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Faith and hope, as Paul shows us, are inseparably linked. 
And as Paul says, the hope that comes from the gospel, this is the basis for faith and love. You don't have the hope of the gospel, you don't have faith, you don't have love. It serves, if you will, as a springboard for our faith. As pagans, the Colossians before coming to Christ did not possess hope. They had no idea from one moment to the next where they stood with the gods and goddesses that they worshipped. They just had zero objective hope. But then the gospel comes and it changes everything in Colossae. The gospel shows them the true hope of salvation, the hope of new creation, the new heavens, the new earth, the hope of God's kingdom that they are invited to be a part of. And the hope here is not a shot in the dark. That's not the kind of hope that we're talking about. But it is a real objective hope that is grounded in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And Paul writes in Titus 2.11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our hope. And do you notice what Paul says here? He says if that is your hope, he says we ought to be renouncing ungodliness. That means we ought to watch our tongues. It means we ought to not walk in sexual immorality because, friends, he's coming again. And if that is your hope then your hope ought to be to have a posture. Your, your, your goal ought to be to have a posture that is ready and eagerly waiting His coming. You know, growing up when I was a child, when I was doing wrong, disobeying my parents, I never looked forward to them coming home. Matter of fact, I'd have my brother watch out the window to, for when they pulled in the, the driveway, right? Don't judge me. Every one of you in here have done that, right? But I had no issue when I wasn't being disobedient. I had no issue. I was ready. I was always ready for my parents to come home. Right? No issue at all. Well, if you're living right before the Lord and this hope is producing in you, the Spirit of God is producing in you purity and holiness, then you have no reason to kind of hide from the presence of God and say, well, I hope he doesn't come back today. No, the heart of a true Christian who is resting in this hope is, hey, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. 1 John 3, 2, John says, beloved, we are God's children now, and we celebrate that. But he says this, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but when we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. The Colossians and all those who have repented and believed in the gospel have not just a hope for this life, but they have an eternal hope. The eternal hope that will never fade. Let me read you just the final part of this text here. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul here is celebrating too the universality of the gospel. The gospel is universal. See, Christianity was not just like another 
of the local sects of the Roman world. It was not merely another cult like the ones that were permeating Colossae. No, the gospel was and is the hope of the entire world. It's not just the hope of America, friends. It is the hope of all the nations. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I love the words to this song. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, other ground is sinking sand. Jesus Christ is not just the hope of real life, not just the hope of Richmond, but He is the hope for all the world. He is sufficient. As many of you know, my, my cousin Christine was diagnosed over a year ago with a very aggressive form of breast cancer. After many months of, of surgeries and chemo and radiation, she went back for some testing to see her prognosis, hoping to hear the great news that the cancer has left her body. Instead, she got an awful prognosis saying that the cancer had spread, it was in her bones. She was so eaten up that actually a part of her spine snapped that they had to fuse back together. And they said, Christine, we're sorry to tell you this, but you have two months to live. She's 50 years old. Beautiful children, a grandbaby on the way. And after receiving this news, as I shared Wednesday night, she made a, a heart-wrenching video that was full of hope. She was praying and she was believing for a miracle of physical healing. And we were praying for that as well. But regardless of the outcome, she said that she had a peace. A peace that surpasses all understanding. Let me just share with you again some of what she shared. She said this. She said, I have no regrets. I'm thankful I trusted in Christ as my Savior when I was four years old. She said, I'd love to see my granddaughter be born, but if I don't, I'll see her on the other side. She said, I want to reflect Him, Christ, and His love for us. He's been such a great Father. So even in her sickness, she wants to, her aim was to show that Christ is sufficient. Anybody can praise Him when healing comes on this earth. But when you're given eight weeks to live and you can still say, oh, He's a good Father, that makes Christ look beautiful and sufficient. She said, I want to finish well. God's given me a peace and a joy and thankfulness. And I plan on living each day to the fullest of what I know. Live. I'm not afraid, she says. I look forward to seeing Jesus. Now, Christine didn't get live. As a matter of fact, Wednesday before the end of the day, she passed away. 50 years old. So how is it that someone who is facing imminent death could have such a peace, such a joy, such a calmness, such a hope? It's because my cousin had been transformed at four years old by the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How can her parents and family members get through such a tough time as this? It's because we all have seen the triad of faith, hope, and love in Christine's life. I just want to ask you today, do you have this kind of hope? If not, run to the gospel of Jesus Christ today. 
cling to it. Quit trying to depend on your own goodness. Repent and say, Lord, I can't do it on my own. I give myself to you. I put my faith in you, Jesus. It's the only way you can have this kind of hope. And assuming that most of you do have this kind of hope, let me just leave you with this. Let me ask you a question. Are you sharing the gospel faithfully with those who are far from God? Friends, family members, co-workers, others that you come in contact with. The gospel was spreading like wildfire in Colossae because the Epaphras, who had just been saved in Ephesus, wanted to spread the hope and the love of Jesus Christ. He believed it. He believed that Jesus is the way and the, and the only way of salvation. And he wanted to get the message out. And he wanted everybody in his city to know about the hope of Jesus Christ. And when you preach it, this is what happens. It takes root by God's sovereignty and it spreads like wildfire. And friends, it will change a city, it will change a nation, and it will change a world. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to take the gospel today and I want you to be bold enough to share it with people. Don't just tell them how good God is. Don't just do nice things for them. Oh, do those things. But tell them the gospel truth, so to speak. If you don't give them the gospel, you've given them nothing. And may it spread around Richmond and the surrounding counties. And may it reach to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name.